0: Hey, friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful superfans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6.
2: There are massive wildfires burning in southern Nova Scotia.
3: We've never faced wildfires like this before. Don't know if their homes are standing, um, what's left behind of their properties. Wondering whether insurance will cover damages. You put your life in a box and you
1: drive away. Insurance, climate change, and the premiums of the future. That's coming up on Day 6 today. Queer through the ages.
2: The world of Pompeii her fantasy world.
1: Lesbian love unfolds in a time-shifting opera, a film genius brought to life by dance.
0: The relationship of Norman McLaren with dance was so intimate.
1: Norman McLaren takes the stage in the National Ballet's Frame by Frame and... When your grandfather was one of baseball's greats. It ain't been done before and it ain't been done since. Why Yogi Berra deserves more respect. All today on Day 6, the Swing at Everything edition. They
0: come to work and are prepared for these type incidents, although this one is uh, is something we don't see every day. So... Um, you know, uh, often our resources get taxed to a point where they're 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 tired, they're hungry, they're they're uh, I won't say overwhelmed, but they are definitely working hard to uh, to do what they can for the citizens.
1: That's Brad Connor's district chief with the Halifax Fire Department. This week, emergency crews in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick have been fighting to contain multiple massive wildfires that have damaged hundreds of buildings and forced more than 20,000 people to flee their homes.
4: We honestly thought we were gonna die. It was ash and sparks falling down onto the car. The heat, the flames coming up from the um, trees on
2: both sides.
1: Two of the fires are centered near the communities of Tantallon and Bedford, which are both less than a 30-minute drive from downtown Halifax. Another, in Shelburne County, is the largest wildfire ever recorded in Nova Scotia. So wildfires of this scale are rare in the Maritimes. And District Chief Connors says they're affecting everyone, including his own firefighting team. Like the citizens,
0: we had uh, several of our members lose their home in this fire that have lived in that area so we're also trying to support them uh, the best way we can.
1: Meanwhile in New Brunswick, the Boquebec fire has displaced hundreds of people. Thousands had to be evacuated from Setill in Quebec. And wildfires continue to burn in Alberta in what has already been a brutal fire season for the province. This week, American insurance giant State Farm announced it will no longer offer new home insurance policies in California. One reason the company gave is rapidly growing catastrophe exposure. In other words, too many wildfires. Craig Stewart is Vice President of Climate Change and Federal Issues for the Insurance Bureau of Canada. He's here to tell us how climate change and the resulting catastrophes are changing how Canadians access home insurance and how much we're going to have to pay for it. Craig, welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Brent. Great to be here. You live in the Halifax area. What has this week been like for you?
5: um it's been surprising i'd say would be the keyword uh you know for many of us that live in and around halifax you know we would never have expected that a uh, a fire like this could happen uh, on the outskirts of uh, a major city and that mm-hmm. could frankly spread so quickly uh, evacuating thousands from their homes you know many in the area have been inhaling wildfire smoke but that's been the least of the problems you know just to see friends businesses that we're familiar with evacuated with uncertainty out of their homes so quickly. Uh, Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been unnerving.
1: And some of those homes and businesses have been lost as well. So should people in the affected areas and in the adjacent areas expect a rise in insurance rates in the coming year?
5: Well no no single event drives insurance premiums. Insurance premiums are, are based on risk and, and those are based on longer term trends. So people that live uh, in Nova Scotia shouldn't see their premiums rise from this specific event. Uh, their home premiums will be based on regional risk models that take into account you know a greater number of factors. so, so no it, it, this event itself won't drive premiums up.
1: That not, not the single event, but if, if the event is part of a trend, then then we're looking at something else. And insurance companies are famously good at modeling what is expected to happen in particular regions. How well has that worked out in Canada when it comes to climate change and the rate at which climate change is happening and how it's affecting people's property?
5: Well, our, our models have been uh, in some ways insufficient. The Fort Mac fire, for example, far exceeded any of the modeling that we did our models aren't good at picking up things like ice jams in rivers in the middle of winter uh, which we've Mm. seen more and more of but overall uh, insurers um, are seeing a rise in claims across the country from severe weather events and and it's reinsurers that have the most sophisticated modeling so these are the global companies um, we, you know when you buy an insurance policy you 're essentially paying uh, an insurer to take that risk away from you right. well insurers do the same thing they they package they bundle a whole bunch of risk, and then pass that on to reinsurers so it 's not on their books so they 're protected. And reinsurers have been looking around the world at the riskier places and pushing up reinsurance rates for those places quite dramatically over the last couple of years. And, and Canada is one of those places. So that gets passed down to insurers. They pay higher rates. And then, of course, that gets passed down to homeowners who also pay higher rates because they live in, in riskier parts of the world.
1: What does that graph of added expense look like, of rising rates? Can you, can you tell what it's going to be 10 or 15 years down the line?
5: We can't predict the rates themselves, but we are seeing the the curve of losses. You know, prior to two thousand nine, average losses in this country were about four hundred million a year. Mm -hmm. You know, in the last five years, uh, it's been over two billion a year. Last year was a three billion a year loss event in Canada. Uh, So the numbers are trending in the wrong direction, and they're accelerating rapidly.
1: I mean, this sounds like a coming crisis. Were you surprised to learn that State Farm wouldn't be accepting new home insurance applications in California because – in part because of the frequency of wildfires in the state?
5: We weren't entirely uh, surprised because we've heard rumblings that insurance companies have been contemplating restricting business in the California market for years. Uh, We've seen this happen with hurricane insurance in Florida and Louisiana. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that California is now a predictable place of wildfire loss, very high populations, lots of, lots of homes in, in very dry, high risk areas. And it's very analogous to living in floodplains in Canada as soon as something no longer an accident, as soon as you can predict that that event is going to occur in a, in a particular region, it's no longer really a good candidate for insurance because insurance mm-hmm. is designed to cover accidents.
1: So what's, I mean, I know this is a grandfathered decision in California. This is about new policies, but what is going to happen to people that can no longer get insurance? I just can't imagine what it would be like to have your most valuable assets sitting there unprotected
5: the The real problem is uh, if your mortgage uh requires you to have insurance, then right. you can no longer get your mortgage and therefore you may not be able to stay in your house those are the 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 situations where you know you're, not only are you exposed but your mortgage lender may no, may no longer feel comfortable lending you the money.
1: Could you see that happening in Canada in the floodplains, the areas that you mentioned before, or you know the, where the wildfires have, have happened and been catastrophic in, in in Alberta, like Slave Lake or or Fort Mac, or, or maybe Nova Scotia, if there's a repeat of what's happening this summer in years to come? So
5: yes and no. So it's already exists in floodplains. Uh, there's about ten percent of Canadians Canadian homeowners. That's about one and a half million homes in this country that are uninsurable uh, because of predictive risk that we know they're going to flood. And so those homeowners uh, don't have access to flood insurance and they're basically relying on government bailouts uh, Mm post-event to help them. Most are unaware of the risk that they face. And that's why the the federal government, we've been working with them to stand up a flood insurance program for high-risk properties uh, so they do have access to insurance. Now on wildfire, we don't see that as a, uh, you know, we haven't heard any rumblings. Wildfires are still considered to be accidental. We do a pretty good job of firefighting in this country, to be honest. You know, in 2018, all of the interior of British Columbia burned yes. and we only lost 300 structures. And so we haven't seen in this country, uh, you know, we haven't heard of any rumblings that there may be companies pulling out of certain regions of the, of the country due to wildfire
1: but if the frequency rises of these events and they're no longer considered accidental then the insurance rates will absolutely rise won't they and, and what will happen then it will will insurance continue to be affordable to the people who are living in the areas that are no longer considered uh in the accidental range of events
5: it's a great point and that is a concern will people be people that are now you know in escalating areas of high risk be able to afford the premiums that they have to pay And we we don't know. Uh, At some point, we may see disincentives, premium disincentives to people living in certain areas of the country if they can't afford it. And that's why this partnering between insurers and governments is so important. We've seen this happen in other parts of the world. California Mm -hmm. does it on earthquake. Britain does it on flooding. France does it on a multi peril basis. And so it's, can we set up some sort of catastrophic insurance program in partnership between insurers and governments that will, you know, starting with flood in this country, but built to be expanded to cover other perils if need be. And this is a, I mean, this is a very topical real conversation the uh, federal government announced in back in March in the federal budget uh, that they would be standing up a national flood insurance program uh-huh. and the intent is to build this program to be expandable to other perils if needed.
1: What are your conversations with governments like when it comes to getting them to acknowledge how much risk there is now and how much more risk there may be in the future because of climate?
5: You know, it was more difficult a decade ago. I think now there's an acceptance that these aren't fluke events. This is part of a wider pattern and driven by climate change. The heaviest lift really has been, you know, so much of the oxygen has been sucked out of the room by the fights over emission reduction and carbon Mm -hmm. pricing Mm -hmm. that climate policy is now equated to reducing carbon emissions. When when we haven't spent enough time, frankly, governments haven't spent enough time thinking about this is real. This is happening right now. What do we have to do, you know, in terms of policies, in terms of investments to reduce the risk in Canada? We, We need to kind of probably rethink, you know, how we build a culture of
1: preparedness in the country. Craig Stewart, all the best to you and your neighbors in the Halifax metro region. And thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Brent. Craig Stewart is vice president of climate change and federal issues for the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Still to come, Yogi Berra was the most quotable player in baseball history. His granddaughter says he deserves to be remembered as one of the best.
4: People think of him more as the pitch man.
1: Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. We've lost a great one. That's Quebec MP Denis Trudel paying tribute to actor Michel Côté in the House of Commons. Côté died on Monday. He was 72. Michel Côté might not have been a household name in English Canada, but in Quebec, he was an absolute legend. His career spanned 40 years. He appeared in at least 25 films and more than a dozen TV shows. He's best known for his roles in the movies Cruising Bar and C-R-A-Z-Y. Michel Côté often played father figures, which is how many younger Quebecers will remember him. He will be honoured posthumously with the Ordre Nationale du Québec later this month. And
2: Stephen A, tell me this: Who's the most important player
1: in the finals, Denver Miami? Well, for me, I'm
5: going to say uh, I'm going to say Jamal Murray
1: for the Denver Nuggets. That's right, Kitchener, Ontario's own Jamal Murray. The NBA Finals kicked off Thursday night between the Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets, and Jamal Murray is a big reason the Nuggets are there. Murray had two 37-point games as his team swept the Lakers, and he helped the Nuggets to a convincing win in Game One. Viewing parties were held throughout Kitchener to watch the game. Game two is tomorrow in Denver. Still to come here on Day 6, a lesbian love story that spans the ages, from ancient Pompeii to the gay world of the 1980s. It's called Pomegranate.
2: A society of women existed that embraced love between women. The 2015 All-Star Game features
4: the four greatest living baseball players. Hank Aaron, Aaron. Johnny Bench, Sandy Koufax, Koufax. and Willie Willie Mays. They're all absolutely amazing players in their own right, but I'm in the room sitting next to my grandfather, Yogi Berra, and I'm thinking, wait a second. He's got more MVPs than any of these guys. He's won more World Series rings than all four of them combined. And I look at him and I said, are you dead and he said not yet
1: that's lindsey barra she's a sports writer and the granddaughter of yankees legend yogi barra a lot of people will remember yogi for the many commercials he did over the decades including ones for insurance companies beer and yoo the drink of champions well if you get hurt and miss work it won't hurt the miss work uh-huh. and they give you cash which is just as good as money Or you might remember Yogi for his so-called Yogiisms, like when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Or you can observe a lot by watching. Or his most famous line, it ain't over till it's over. Yogi's huge personality may have taken away from his legacy on the field. And the facts don't lie. Yogi Berra was a really, really good player. There are only two people
5: with more than 350 home runs and fewer than 500 strikeouts in the whole history of Major
1: League Baseball. And their names are Joe DiMaggio and Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra had 10 World Series rings, more than any other player ever. His real name was Lorenzo Pietro, but he went by Larry, He was the son of Italian immigrants, and before he made the big leagues, he played at a diamond that didn't have benches in the dugouts. So he sat cross-legged on the ground while he was waiting to bat. Someone said he looked like a yogi, and the name stuck, and it kind of suited him. Yogi Berra died in 2015 at the age of 90, and now a new documentary about him aims to set the record straight and make it clear that he's not just a punchline or a philosopher in the dugout but one of the greatest baseball players ever. Yogi's granddaughter, Lindsay, narrates the film. Lindsay Barra, good morning. Welcome to the program.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: When you think about your grandfather and the way that you remember him, how do you describe him in a sentence?
4: Oh, my God, in one sentence? You can use several. Um, (laughs) For me, he was like a normal grandpa. He was the guy who burned all our hot dogs at our family barbecues. (laughs) And I got to roll the meatballs with before Thanksgiving and Christmas. We played wiffle ball in the yard. Um, You know, I grew up watching boxing matches with him because he was super into the fights. He was an undefeated boxer in the Navy. He got me into ice hockey. It was very, you know, sports and food were what we did in our house. But that's what I remember about him. By the time I was old enough to understand that he was Grandpa Yogi was also that guy, Yogi Berra. He'd already been Grandpa Yogi for so long that it was kind of hard for me to rationalize that other fact in my mind. So my memories of Grandpa Yogi are the meatballs. And like when I talk about, you know, the guy with the 10 World Series championships, the 18 All-Star Game appearances, all those records by a catcher that will never be broken. That's Yogi Berra, even though I'm obviously old enough to know very well that they're the same person. They don't often really meet and shake hands in my mind.
1: Well, first of all, he sounds like a great grandpa. I mean, (laughs) meatballs, hot dogs, and and hockey, that's terrific grandpa territory. (laughs) But you you mentioned the World Series rings and all of the records that he held, but I, I, I get the sense that that's not the way you think a lot of people remember him. When they think about him as a baseball icon, what do people focus on?
4: I think most people think of him more as the pitch man than the baseball icon because I think there's a bit of a recency bias. He played his last game in the big leagues on May 9th, 1965, and then he spent 50 years as a manager being quoted in the press saying funny things, being mm-hmm. quoted by the by presidents saying funny mm-hmm. things making commercials for Yoohoo and Amtrak and Aflac and Pringles and Visa. And I think because of that, what's most upfront in people's minds is Grandpa as the funny older guy with the big ears who said funny things, who they have this vague knowledge that, that he was a baseball player, but they know him more as this pitchman um, for products and and the guy who said all the yogisms.
1: And when did it occur to you that that was kind of an injustice, that the people were missing some of the things that made your grandfather great?
4: I, I think for me, it really was that 2015 All-Star Game. Um, I don't think grandpa ever really thought about it. And because of that, I don't think I thought about it. But when I was sitting with him, Watching the 2015 All-Star Game and Major League Baseball brings out Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Sandy Koufax, and Johnny Bench as the greatest living players, Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting next to my very much alive Grandpa Yogi, who has more World Series than all of them combined, I was a little (laughs) bit flabbergasted that people could leave him off of that list. That, so, so that was the one major, you know, kind of tipping point for me, yeah. I think.
1: And lots of people agreed with you. And the film is, is filled with a who's who of baseball who want to talk about the things that Yogi did on, on the field. Bob Costas, Willie Randolph, Derek Jeter, Billy Crystal, sportscaster Vin Scully, who, who died last summer. This film, in fact, was, was his last interview. Why was it important for you to have Vin Scully in the film?
4: So I wanted to get as many people as possible who had either seen grandpa play or who had played with my grandfather so they mm-hmm. could talk about his impact on other players, what he looked like on the field as an as an athlete, um, you know, and just how he was able to kind of turn games with one swing. And Vin Scully – had called Dodger games since the early 50s, basically my grandfather's entire career. And they were in the World Series against the Dodgers so many times. And Vin was actually the very first interview we went after because he was not a young man when we started shooting. And I I knew that there was a chance our time could be limited. Um, And I felt the same way about other folks like Bobby Richardson, Tony Kubek, Hector Lopez, Ralph Terry. Audrey Garagiola was the widow of Joe Garagiola, Grandpa's best friend from growing up on the hill. Um, and a
1: neighbor, his neighbor.
4: And his neighbor, right? They grew up right across the street from each other, 5446 and 5447 Elizabeth Avenue. And then the other one I really wanted to get was Roger Angel, right. who had covered baseball in New York from the moment he got out of World War II. So from 1946 on and he was 100 years old when we interviewed him for the movie and he looks like he's like 75.
1: I know, he looks amazing in the film. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So George Steinbrenner was the owner of the Yankees. Steinbrenner was not well liked, but he hired your grandfather as manager in 1984. And then in less than a year, Steinbrenner had him fired. He didn't do it in person. He sent somebody to fire him after saying he was going to keep him on. And that caused a rift. And Yogi refused to go to Yankee stadium for anything. After 14 years, Steinbrenner finally apologizes and Yogi returns to Yankee Stadium. What do you think it meant to him to be back there?
4: I mean, everything. Like he, I know, considered the Yankees his extended family. You know, Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Hank Bauer, Moose Scourin, uh, Phil Rizzuto. These were all his best friends, and the easiest way for him to see them was to go to the ballpark in the summer because mm-hmm. they kind of mm-hmm. congregated there. So he was giving up seeing guys he considered his brothers, and as soon as that. Rift ended as soon as George said, I'm sorry, it was literally like it had never happened. Grandpa was at the ballpark, basically the next day, he would be at spring training for the next 13 seasons, I think. And he got to become a mentor for Guys like Paul O'Neill, Tino Martinez, Jorge Posada, Derek Jeter, Bernie Williams, Nick Swisher, this, this younger generation of, of Yankees. And I know they all learned so much and benefited so much from being around grandpa. But I think grandpa benefited just as much from being around them. I say all the time that I think his ability to be back at the ballpark and back with the Yankees probably extended his life by about 10 years. And I'm incredibly grateful for that.
1: Let's, let's talk about something that happened on Yogi Berra Day at, at Yankee Stadium. You were there. But in 1956, Yogi Berra was the catcher when Don Larson threw a perfect game in the, in the World Series, a huge, like monumental, historic achievement. And then he returns to Yankee Stadium. They had Yogi Berra Day and pitcher David Cohn, who I should say is a former Blue Jay, throws a perfect game in front of Yogi. What was that like? I mean, the whole place just seemed like it was in trance. What was yeah. it like for you and for Yogi?
4: It was totally surreal. Grandpa used to say about that perfect game in, in the World Series, it ain't been done before and it ain't been done since. But Don Larson was there that day too on Yogi Baraday Day and he threw – The opening pitch out to Grandpa Yogi in Mm -hmm. commemoration of that perfect game. And then David Cohn and Joe Girardi went out there and basically duplicated that achievement. And it was nuts. Uh, My whole family was there. We were up in the, the owner's box. And nobody wanted to stand up, use the restroom, cross their legs the opposite direction, eat anything, and certainly not talk except for don larson and grandpa yogi who would not shut up (laughs) like to the point where it was really stressing people out and you see in the film at the the last inning grandpa was actually in the broadcast booth and everyone was really happy to see him leave because they thought maybe donnie would stop talking um but it was crazy our director sean mullen always says that if this had been a scripted film and he had written that into the script the producers would have been. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, come happen. on. We're not shooting this. That but can't it happen.
1: That really <laughs> Sean Mullen has said that everybody knows Yogi, but nobody knows Yogi. What's one thing you hope people will learn about Yogi Berra from this film?
4: I want them to remember what a tremendous player he was. That as a catcher, he really did things that nobody else ever did a 148 game errorless streak he caught both ends of double headers 117 times in his career i physical challenge any major league catcher to go out there and catch a double header the whole thing and then walk up the stairs the next day right you know, you mentioned the stat that there's only two players in baseball history that have more than 350 home runs and fewer than 500 strikeouts, mm-hmm. and it's Grandpa and Joe DiMaggio, and I don't think people think of him in the same sentence as, as Joe DiMaggio very often, but he deserves to be there. So I want people to remember what a great player he was, but beyond that, I want them to remember that as good as he was on the field, he was a better human being.
1: Lindsey Barra, nice to meet you. Thank you very much for being with us.
4: Thanks so much for having me, everybody. Go to the movies.
1: Lindsay Barra is a sports writer and the granddaughter of Yankees legend Yogi Barra. She's also the narrator and executive producer of the documentary It Ain't Over, which is playing at the Hot Docs Cinema in Toronto until June 6th. It screens in London, Ontario on June 9th and then moves to Hamilton on June 11th. (laughs)
2: striking thing about the piece that hit me right away was the the juxtaposition between these two incredibly different worlds ancient Pompeii and 1980s Toronto in the gay village.
1: That's Jennifer Tarver, the director of Pomegranate. It is a new opera that premiered last night at the Canadian Opera Company Theatre in Toronto. It's a chamber opera, but it's not your typical one. The libretto began as a book of poetry inspired by the Villa of Mysteries in Pompeii. The timeline travels across 2,000 years, and at the heart of the story are two lesbian women who struggle to freely and openly express their love for one another. Jennifer Tarver is the director of Pomegranate, Jennifer, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Brent. When you first read the script for Pomegranate, Amanda Hale's text, what did you think?
2: When I first read Pomegranate, I was struck by the poetry. The poetry and the imagery. It's a piece that takes place in two very, very different locations, ancient Pompeii and Toronto in the gay village in the, in the 1980s. Right. That's really, you know, the most striking thing is just these two radically different locations.
1: And then there are these two women, Sully and Cassia, or Susie and Cass, yes. depending on which time zone you're in. That's right. How did the story of those women resonate with you?
2: Well, very strongly. I myself am with a woman. I'm married to a woman. And these two women met when they were very young. The women in the story, they met in high school. I met my wife in my 20s. Definitely the hardships and challenges that you go through uh, trying to navigate being in love with, um, not only societal prejudices, but prejudice within your own family. Mm -hmm. So I could really relate to their experience and the narrative that Amanda has crafted in this piece.
1: And then in this case, as you said, the narrative is in, is in two very, very different places in ancient Pompeii, it's Sully and Cassia. And then in Toronto's gay village, it's Susie and Cass. What do those couples share in common? In both of those places, in both of those very different
2: times. These two worlds sat side by side, and it was a little bit ambiguous as to how they were connected narratively. Mm-hmm. And over the course of a couple of years, I worked with Amanda and Kai dramaturgically on the piece. And the thing I was really interested in was what is the relationship between the two worlds? Why do they exist side by side? Mm-hmm they started in response to that question to really craft the piece through the lens of Cass. And the world of Pompeii became her fantasy world. It was a fantasy world that existed for a very specific reason because of the challenges of living in a society where love between two women needed to be hidden. The world of Pompeii was a ideal world where a society of women existed that embraced love between women. Mm -hmm. And so the fantasy became something that was born out of necessity, which was really like a narrative shift from the original rendition.
1: Hmm. And so what is it that's missing in the early eighties in the gay village that sends her back to this fantasy world? What is she trying to fulfill that's not fulfilled by life in in the recent past, in our recent history.
2: Yeah, the 1980s, it was still a world where most gay people could not come out to their families. Mm -hmm. There was a lot more secrecy in terms of who their lovers were in society, with their families, in the workplace, just about everywhere. And so the bar, which is called the Fly By Night, which existed apparently for a couple of years in the gay village in Toronto, was really a true refuge Mm. for these women. And um, many of them literally had no place else to go where they could be themselves.
1: And and so have you talked to anyone that used to go there?
2: Well, actually, the composer, Kai Marshall, frequented this bar. This was her second home. (laughs) And so it's very, very uh, personal to her and uh, autobiographical in terms of creating a piece that is located in this place. But yeah, she's full of very specific memories as to what this place was and why it needed to exist.
1: Opera has a strong following among gay men. Do you think there'd be an opportunity here to extend that to lesbians?
2: I hope so. Yeah, it's hard to say, you know, like, people are people. And it's, it's true, I guess, you know, lesbians do not have the same reputation as gay men for being fans of opera. But I hope this can, you know, shift the tide would be wonderful.
1: Hmm. In, in 2021, I spoke to to Taya Kasahara about her role as disruptor in residence at the Canadian Opera Company, and she's, she's playing one of the lead roles now in, in Pomegranate. Would you say that Pomegranate is also part of an opera disruption?
2: Well, I would certainly in the subject matter. Absolutely. I, I personally don't know of any other lesbian operas, and I think stylistically as well, in terms of you know spanning those two very, very different worlds. The contemporary elements to the musical style, I think, um, is something that's part of an evolution in, in the operatic form, for sure.
1: Hmm. You know, women are being, are being persecuted in operas for hundreds of years, mostly by male composers. Yes. And, and male librettists. It's true. But it's definitely one of the themes in opera. Can you tell me how it's different, Pomegranate?
2: You know, Pomegranate explores a world— that, that has very strong female leadership, mm-hmm. um, both in Toronto and in Pompeii. And speaking of Thea, Thea plays both Jules as the bartender and the priestess in Pompeii. And they are an incredibly strong presence that become very, very active in terms of the protection of the world that they are part of and that they represent. So I feel the the representation in opera of these very specific societies that are female-centric mm-hmm. and led by strong female leaders is is something that we don't see a lot in opera.
1: You're the director of Pomegranate, but you, you've also said you're the dramaturge. For, am I saying it right? Dramaturge is such a great word.
2: Dramaturge, yes.
1: It, you're also the dramaturge. That means you've worked with it and you've worked with all of the other artistic parties in it for for, for many years now. How does it feel to finally see it up on stage?
2: It's amazing. I mean, you know, it's always a work in progress. You know, it's one thing to sit around a table and talk about ideas, but it's not until you get in the rehearsal room in real time with all of the artists that you can actually test drive whether or not the ideas you've been working on really, truly work. There's a whole process of dramaturgy that is Uh, very active and studio-based. And so one of the challenges is that we've been given a very traditional production schedule for a new work that is essentially still in progress. Part of it is exhilarating to see these ideas come into fruition, and part of it is still like, oh my god, this is still really challenging. Um, How do we keep finessing this in the limited time that we have to bring it to its full potential? So it's the the challenges never never end with a new work, um, which is par for the course.
1: Right. Well, it's it's exciting for many different reasons, and thank you for sharing some of them with us, Jennifer. Congratulations.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Jennifer Tarver is the director of Pomegranate, which debuted last night at the Canadian Opera Company Theater in Toronto. to come on Day Six. How much do you need a Day Six tote bag? Summer's here; they're great for the beach. Here's your chance. Rift from the headlines. Our weekly quiz is coming right up.
3: I told the court that I'm wrong. Mr. To you. Mr. Simpson, you, you are know. not you have too to hear me. There's you too much
4: being hid- hid from you. To be taken out of the court. There's too much.
3: He was one small man in a giant wheel caught well, I do wish to say that it's official that I'm wrongfully in prison right now.
4: Uncover, Season 7, Dead
3: Wrong.
5: I asked him if he killed Pepple. He said yes, and I'd be next.
3: Available on CBC Listen and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We are on public radio stations across the United States. You can live stream us on the CBC Listen app, and we're online at cbc.ca slash day6.
0: Norman McLaren uh, is somebody from the analog world. He's somebody way before the digital age. Uh, He was a bit of a monk. He would spend hours creating these amazing
1: effects uh, movement effects. That's Robert Lepage talking about the late Scottish-Canadian filmmaker Norman McLaren. McLaren was a pioneer of film and animation and a legend of the heyday of the National Film Board. He won an Oscar in 1952 for Best Short Documentary for Neighbors, a Silver Bear at the 1956 Berlin International Film Festival for Rhythmetic, and a BAFTA in 1969 for his animated film Pas de Dieu. McLaren is also the inspiration for an on-stage collaboration between film and theater director Robert Lepage and dancer and choreographer Guillaume Coté of the National Ballet of Canada. Exploring the world of McLaren, we discovered that uh, there was this whole connection, this important
0: uh, obsession of McLaren for uh, dance and, of course, very
1: preoccupied by movement. And I thought, oh, this would be uh, the ideal thing. The result is Frame by Frame, an onstage marriage of dance and technology, ballet and film. Frame by Frame had its world premiere in 2018, and it's back on now at the Four Seasons Centre for the Performing Arts in Toronto. Robert Lepage and Guillaume Coté, welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Good morning. Let's go back to the origins, Chabert. When did you know that you had to do something involving Norman McLaren and his work?
0: Uh, well, I was a great fan of, of his work, and I knew a lot about him. And, and uh, uh, I guess, like a lot of people in, in Canada from my generation, you know, if you'd watch the uh, the hockey finals, there's always be like this kind of odd uh, fifteen or twenty minutes uh, before the news where uh, CBC, whether it's French or English. You know, didn't have anything to fill up that 15 oh, yeah. minutes, they'd always kind of cram a, a McLaren uh, animation film or, or film. So, so, of course, I got to know them by heart. You know? And um, eventually, um, I, I did a, a project in Quebec City called the Image Mill, which was a huge uh, architectural uh, projection project. And we did it for a couple of years. And I said, well, why don't we use it to... Uh, tell other stories than the, the, the story of the 100th, 400th anniversary of Quebec City. So, and we had the idea of, of uh, teaming up with the NFB and seeing if we could do something uh, about Norman McLaren. And, and mm-hmm. you know, we, we did, you know, uh, had a full year of, of projections of uh, and, and did a lot of research uh, uh, for that matter and, and worked with a group of really um, interesting, very clever uh, video artists and, and, and uh, graphic designers. And, and so, of course, I got very obsessed. By him. And then um, Guillaume and I uh, started to kind of hang out together, and he came to Quebec City and and he saw it and said, Well, you know, why don't we do something about this? Because the relationship of Norman McLaren with dance was so intimate towards towards, the other's life, principally, but but still, you know, there's nothing more uh, connected than animation and the idea of movement and and dance.
1: McLaren did stop motion animation famously. He was enormously innovative in all of his experimental filmmaking, but then he made these films about dance that were, that were so important and also celebrated. What have you learned, Guillaume about dance from watching McLaren's films?
3: Well, you know, the most, one of the most interesting things is the McLaren films came into my life differently because I had teachers at the ballet school, which actually were featured In those films, Uh, I had Anne Marie Holmes, Uh my teacher, who was in Ballet Adagio. And uh, it was funny as a student, I remember, you know, like when your teachers show you old videos of themselves dancing, you kind of go, oh, okay then, you know, ballet Adagio came on and it was pretty spectacular, the Mm -hmm. extreme slow motion Mm -hmm. film. And it was, it's like, I don't know, it's like eight minutes or something of watching two people in slow motion. But it it, it made for the most magical, magical thing because all of a sudden you you see all the muscles and you see the the physicality and you see the the incredible athleticism behind it. And Mm. I thought, what an incredible way of using film to not only democratize dance and and show it to a wider audience but also to to just like extract something totally different Mm -hmm. from it Mm -hmm. and I felt that um, that's yeah from ballet adagio and then pas de deux as well Margaret Mercier who was my teacher at the ballet school at the National Ballet School in Toronto for summer schools uh, who was featured in that film you know and and the idea of the film being a dancer as well like the film was choreographed in a sense that i didn't feel like it was just choreography filmed right. it was that he choreographed the action in a way that i'd never seen before uh, so, yeah, so discovering his work, I think, uh, I think made me also feel like there's definitely a really great link to be made between film and dance. Uh, and of course, I mean, the dream of working with Robert uh, had been long uh, on my list. And then this idea of mixing film, uh, Robert's stagecraft and ballet, I thought was a was a no brainer that it would sort of be just a, a wonderful uh, wonderful project. Guillaume, you mentioned that,
1: that some of your instructors are actually featured in McLaren's films, and there are historical figures in this dance. Oscar Peterson, yes. for example, mm-hmm. appears in this production. What is Oscar Peterson's connection to McLaren?
3: He was a he was a collaborator on a very famous film, *Begandal Care*. Uh-huh. I think what was really amazing about that particular film is they went completely into like an abstract representation of his music, mm-hmm. and I thought what a thrilling, incredible uh, way of uh, of collaborating. And um, mm-hmm. uh, I think that McLaren he went out of his way to find things that were always a little bit unusual. Like let's say like even Shankar. like mm-hmm. he he collaborated uh, musically with people that were so interesting and so different and so ahead. Ahead of his time mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah Oscar Peterson was definitely one mm-hmm. and it's nice because he comes alive in the show in a really beautiful yeah. way and actually our Oscar
0: Peterson also comes in with the idea of uh, improv mm-hmm. right so that's also one of the revolutions huh. of, yeah. of this uh, animation film that, that was produced by uh, McLaren is that you know how film is, is so organized and pre-organized and, mm. and storyboarded mm-hmm. and you know and suddenly he creates this extraordinary freestyle thing yeah. with somebody who does that with music, and I think that that was one of the big revolutions at the moment when, it, when this film came out is that everything seems so improvised, but mm-hmm. it 's so incredibly synced with the music, but both uh, sound and vision
1: is, is completely freeing it 's very liberating. at times, some of this work looks abstract and frame by frame. What are the challenges of representing an historical figure? In you know, in, in a dance presentation, in something that's 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 not biographical, but but at the same time is is telling these stories.
0: So it's a bit biographical. It's 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 not a biopic right. kind of biography, but but uh, we we tell this story through his work. But he is incarnated. He's on stage. His lovers on stage. Mm-hmm. His collaborators, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the people who work with him, either uh, scoring his films or or, or helping choreograph, so they're they're actually on stage. We see them. They're inc- incarnated. So there's a bit mm-hmm. of bi stuff going little, on yeah. but in a way that I think he would agree it's always done in a very uh, poetic it's not mm-hmm. cheesy so so of course yeah it's, it's a challenge but we forget that um, though he was a, a Canadian hero uh, you know he's his origin he's from Scotland actually and he went right. through he went to London and after went to New York came to Ottawa eventually moved to Montreal but in and out he would go to China he'd go to Korea he'd go so, so his aesthetic style and and uh, was influenced very much by calligraphy, by, by uh, South Korean writing. Mm-hmm. That was important for us to, to make that statement that, you know, that you, you are who you are because of where you live, but also by your world interests. And if
1: M- McLaren was also a gay man at a time when, when uh, being openly gay was not something that, that was extremely uh, usual. How important was, was it for that to be represented in this production? Yeah. Uh, you know,
3: I think it was very important just to, to touch on his personal life. He had a really beautiful relationship with Guy Glover for a very long time, who actually, he outlived him for, for, by quite a bit. And Guy Glover yeah. is the one who introduced him to dance. That's right. And Guy Glover was actually a dance producer as well. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful love story. So um, I think we wanted to make sure we, we portrayed the beauty of mm-hmm. their love story, you know, and even some really beautiful dance sequences and also used, uh, used the first meeting that they had, which, uh, which was at mm-hmm. Covent Garden mm-hmm. uh, during the performance of Swan Lake. So mm-hmm. we sort of reconstructed a version of, uh, mm-hmm. of what that would have been, mm-hmm. a sort of a playful reconstruction of,
0: of their meeting but there was also uh, uh in, in his movies we forget that there's always a kind of social dimension right. and uh, and messages of course the neighbors it's clear that it's uh, you know it's, it's about war and we're more amused and entertained by the whole craft and eventually we understand that uh, it, it's it's about war but it's the same thing with Narcissus. Uh, at the end of his life, he did this very, very highly political. When you come to think of it, when you when you think of it, when it was actually shot, he does this whole uh, thing about a man who who has both male and female lovers. Everybody's attracted to him, and then suddenly at the end, uh, falls in love with himself. But ends up in a prison. Uh, the last mm-hmm. shot, and that's not right. always shown. And I'm sure that um, in, in the hockey finals of the 1960s, <laughs> at, the, at the very end, you know, the, the, this, he, he makes that That's statement true. where, yeah. where uh, Narcissus ends up behind bars. I mean, it's a huge, 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 huge statement. So so he was very, um, you know, politically involved. Yeah. Uh, he had ideas. He wanted to make these these social uh, comments but in a very highly poetic mm. uh i'd say a non-overstated way Robert,
1: you've you've noted that mclaren worked in an analog world he used real 16 millimeter film and some at some points he actually drew on the film with his with his bare hands now there are all kinds of technologies available it is a digital era now and you can replicate or maybe even push past some of the innovations that mclaren was able to do at the time how are you using new technology in this production? Well, you just push on one
0: button. I mean, it sounds <laughs> a bit kind of kooky, <laughs> but that's what it uh, that is. And that's also what we wanted to show is that it, this is extraordinary uh, the, 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 the film he did with the, these two dancers Pas-de-due. in Padre where they have these uh, amazing kind of illusions where you, where you see the movement being. Uh, and that's a complete analog way of thinking and seeing and all that. Of course, we just push on a button. You know, does it and does it at the speed that we want all that. Mm -hmm. So it's not to diminish the thing; is that what he did with it was so poetic and interesting, and and, and the effect it has is the same as when we push the button. It's because we're in a completely new era, and we're doing an homage to a guy who was completely in an analog era. We have to, as artists, we have to defend that that approach because, uh, you know, for example, um, up until the mid nineteenth century. Uh, the the uh, you know there was all the great uh, romantic painters and Delacroix and all these people. But of course, if you were a painter and you made a living out of it, it was because that the the, the uh, you know the oil was expensive, uh, oil painting was expensive, and and, and then you had to be commissioned to do a, a work and all that. So it was only like a very small batch of artists who could do these things. Suddenly, acrylic paint is invented, and. It, it democratizes the whole thing and everybody starts doing painting and doing a uh, great work, but because it dries very quickly, uh, you have to do it very quickly. So you, it creates impressionism. Mm-hmm. So with every new medium, every new uh, kind of paint or app or, or what, call it what you want. So, so we have to be open to that too. So that's why I, I find mm-hmm. it interesting to be doing a show about an analog pioneer uh, with a completely digital approach, and and, uh, and and I think it's in our show it's seamless because there's a human factor. If there's the dancers that are there and the, mm. that help kind of uh, uh, meld these things together.
1: And and what did the dancers think of this, Guillaume? I've noticed that for many of the performers in Frame by Frame, uh, this is their debut performance in this ballet. What are they telling you about
3: the experience? Um, at the beginning uh, so that when we created this five years ago we, 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 we had a long creation period where we mm-hmm. dove really into a lot of uh, research about the, each character and, and each person and collaborator and, and watch parties and and, um, and and also a lot of improvisation, too, on themes mm-hmm. of McLaren and stuff like that. So a lot of the dancers, the original cast, did instruct how we made the show. But then now, five, year late, five years later, in a ballet company, what happens is there's a really fast turnover. Um, mm-hmm. So the beautiful thing is, and now we have actually three casts dancing the roles. Um, so it was, it's a lot more people, and it's all these younger dancers who uh, are, are, are I, I'll be quite honest, people are not that familiar with McLaren right. in our generation. I think, um, I think it was a really wonderful learning curve and, and, and you know the first couple of rehearsals we had, a, we had some learning rehearsals where we didn't put things into context so we just sort of taught sequences from neighbors and suddenly you have like this flower on stage and this picket fence and two people doing this really weird thing to you know electronic, old 80's electronic music and I think the dancers were a little bit sort of thrown back, they were a bit like oh, okay, what, what is this? And then we sort of took a step back and we started like looking back at the films, putting things into context and then that's when People started being truly excited because when you understand the context and you understood a little bit where we came, uh, where we came from for, with uh, with the material, uh, and and the thing is, there's a lot of amazing dancing in the show. There's so much dancing, so uh, so the dancers are, are thrilled because in so many ways it features a lot of them. Mm. Uh, like the cast is, uh, I think it's like uh, 16 people in one of the casts, and everyone dances like crazy. I mean, you know, if, if you've ever seen a Robert Lepage show, you know that people transform into mm. different. Characters and mm-hmm. and go back and forth and uh, no one uh, no one you know has it easy so um, so the 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 dancers love it because they get to explore I think it's twenty one scenes now I think yeah, it's twenty one so little vignettes and also uh, there's the comedy of it too like there's not that many ballets that that use comedy in this way uh, and that's really quite just. A really lovely celebration of uh, of dance
0: yeah i 've worked on a few dance shows uh, mainly with the contemporary companies and what 's great about doing this show at the national is that um, you know we 're talking about storyline and characters and you know mm-hmm. the classical ballet uh, is used or trained uh, to to, to, to uh, I- incarnating not just ideas and, and, and intuition and movement and colors but also you know Characters and motivations
1: uh, so, so for a theatre director it's a, it's a cool, really cool place to, to develop This kind of project Robert Lepage, Guillaume Coté, thank you very much for being with us today Great Thanks pleasure. for having us Robert Lepage is a film and theatre director Guillaume Coté is a ballet dancer And choreographer Frame by Frame is a National Ballet of Canada production It's on until June 11th At the Four Seasons Centre for the Performing Arts In Toronto
2: Time, weather
3: and From the
1: And here it is, Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Bobby Day and Rockin' Robin, Rubber with It Just Didn't Work Out, and Florida Man by Blue Oyster Cult, and Oliver Shen of Toronto guessed the Headline that we're looking for. Ron DeSantis' Twitter campaign launch did not work out as planned. Congratulations, Oliver. A day six tote bag is on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's Clue. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put "Riff from the Headlines" in the subject. Send it to Day Six at CBC.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a Day Six tote bag. And you can always hear the clues again anytime at CBC.ca/slash Day Six. Time,
2: weather, and the headlines. Ah, yeah!
1: that's our show for this week day six was produced by Lori allen mickey edwards and pedro sanchez our digital producer is paul Hentiuk. our senior producer is gord westmacott thanks to mary catherine McIntosh and halifax for her help this week i'm brent bambury it's seven days to the women's final in the french open two days to world environment day and seven days till we meet again on day six
4: I don't know what people were talking about with this ridiculous, too ugly to be a Yankee crap.
3: For more CBC podcasts, go to cBC.ca/podcasts.